Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking soybeans, one of the most consequential crops for the world economy. What are they? Where are they grown? How are they processed? What is the market for them? And they sit at the heart of geopolitics, food inflation, and the debate over food versus fuel. Our guest to talk all things soybeans is Ivo Saryanovich. Ivo is an independent director of a number of agricultural companies, as well as an investor in ag tech. He's also an adjunct professor at the University of Geneva. Before we get started, a couple of announcements. Please join me at the Reuters Events Commodity Trading USA on the 7th and 8th of June here in Houston, where I'll be moderating a number of panels. Also, I want to encourage listeners to sign up to the HC Insider News Hub, where you can find written interviews and thought pieces and white papers from contributors in the industry. You can find that at hcgroup.global. And as always, if you enjoyed the episode, please do leave us a positive review, and I hope you enjoy the show. Ivo, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here again. So this time we're talking about soybeans, which have been such a consequential crop for the world really since the Second World War and are really at the centre of the story about food inflation as well and multiple industries claiming use on that particular food, in this case, obviously fuel. So we're doing a bit of a soybean 101 this time, which I'm looking forward to. Before we get any further, what are soybeans? Well, soybeans um, are something which his um, scientific name is Glycinamax. They're an annual legume coming from the peace family, but they are an oilseed. Why an oilseed? Because they can produce oil. 20% of the content of the soybeans is oil and roughly 80% is meal. So some people claim that it should be called a meal seed, not an oil seed. And meal is the protein component, which it has a variety of uses, not least animal feed. Correct. The big, big pool comes from the animal feed side and soybeans, they have 40% protein content. So they are very rich and very efficient for feeding purposes. Can you just give us a, a brief potted history of, of soybean in the context of its current industrial agricultural use? I understand that soybeans originated in China about 9,000 years ago. There are some archaeological registers of it, but they started getting planted only in 1,100 before Christ, and then they spread it around Asia in the first century of the current, of the current era. They arrived to Europe in the 18th century, and then to America later on. The first crushing plant in the U.S. was built in the 1920s. Then the big boom of soybeans happened in the 70s when following an El Nino crisis in Peru, the anchovy catch failed, and that was the main source of feed at that moment, fish meal, and it has to be replaced by other meals. And then soybean meal there came to the rescue and started replacing fish meal. So we had a big uh, expansion at that moment. Because of prices went to the moon, just to compare, um, prices in Chicago in 1973, in June 1973, reached 
$11.50 per bushel, which is equivalent today to $75 per bushel. So today we are trading at 16, 17, and in 1973, in real terms, we reached $75. So then the US government decided to ban the exports of soybeans. Then a few days after, they replaced the ban by licenses and quotas. But consumers, they got very concerned about that move, and they started pushing to develop soybeans in other parts of the world. And the Japanese went to Brazil. They decided to promote beans there. So Brazil started developing soybeans in the late 70s, then Argentina in the 80s, and then other countries in South America like Bolivia, Paraguay, and Uruguay. In the 60s, just to give you a feeling of the expansion of this crop, we had only 27 million metric tons of soybeans worldwide. And today, the same number is 395 million metric tons. So the crop in the last 60 years expanded by 14, 15 times. The main producer now is Brazil. Brazil produces roughly 40% of the world crop, followed by the US. The US is producing 30% of the total crop, and then Argentina. If you combine the 150 million of Brazil, 126 of US, and 51 from Argentina, you have 85% of the total supply in the hands of the main three producers. So it's very concentrated. And on the demand side, it's also highly concentrated because these days China is buying about 100 million metric tons, which is 60% of the world trade, which is projected to be in next year at 170 million. So you have uh, the trade in a few hands in terms of countries. Yeah, which plays into, I guess, the geopolitical impacts of rising soybean prices, which we're going to come on to. Can you just, before we get too much further, also, how is this crop both grown and processed? You talk about crush pans. Can you just dig into that a little bit for us? Yeah, most of these beans are processed. Only a tiny portion goes direct to human consumption in the form of tofu, tempeh, edamame, soy milk. But most of it is crushed. During the cash process, soybeans are cracked to remove the hull, and then they roll into flakes, which are then soaked in a solvent and put through a distilling process to produce pure crude soybean oil. After the oil has been extracted, the soybean flakes are dried, toasted, and ground into soybean meal. The oil is used roughly 60% for human consumption, about 30% for biofuels, and 10% for other industrial destinations. And in the case of the meal, the meal is mostly used for feed, 95%. Only a small portion is used for protein demand for human consumption. And of the whole soybean meal, you have roughly 50% going for a chicken feeding, 25% for pigs, and the rest is beef, cattle, aquaculture, and pets. So again, it's sort of uh, highlighting how crucial this is. I was even reading today that it, it, it's part of uh, baby formula as well which is a, mm-hmm. another ongoing story. Okay, so you've got you've got the the oil which is largely used by humans, it's tagged vegetable oil here in the US, um which is again in the news at the moment with rising cooking oils prices as a result of what's going on in Ukraine and other events. And then the vast majority of the soybean meal goes towards animal feed and therein lies that destination of China and their huge consumption for growing um their livestock. Okay, so, and then you've set out geographically for us, you know, you've got sort of roughly two thirds of production share between Brazil and the US, and most of that demand over in Asia. Can you, before we sort of 
soybean prices have been relatively low, relatively stable for the past decade. The previous peak, again, around the current mark of $17 was back in uh, 2012. There's some tie to the the Arab Spring. Can you just talk to us about the market backdrop and also as well um, how soybean is traded um, and where it's traded? Yeah, um, like you said, the previous peak was in September 2012 when the market reached at that moment $17.95 per bushel. But keep in mind that once you consider inflation, that quote of $17.95 is equivalent today to $22.50. So we are not that close at the moment. We are roughly now in real terms 25% the nominal high of 2012. Then prices came down, and before COVID, we were in the area of eight to ten dollars per bushel, and now, okay, we went again to 16, 17. But markets are inverted, so the November 2023 is already quoted at 15.20, and the November 23 is quoted at 14. And if you net it from inflation, that would be equivalent to the 15.20 will be equivalent to 14.60, and the November 23, 14 is equivalent to 12.60. So once you Pencil inflation projected for the future, the inverse is pretty steep. That's going to come into the story about there are multiple pressures on soybeans right now. And, you know, our last episode was why it's the, I think we termed it the not so super cycle and the role of inflation in this. And, you know, inflation adjusted prices look slightly less scary, but are no less important. And you know, that doesn't diminish the, uh, the person in the supermarket. How does soybean actually trade, though? Are we, is it everything done on exchanges? Are there, what's sort of the, the market setup? Well, there are four key markets in soybeans. The most important one is the one in Chicago for seeds, but then you have also the meal one and the soybean oil one that allows you to build a work crash margin, which is essential to be able to hedge the operations once you are operating as a crusher. And then the other major market in beans is Dalian in China, which is... Uh, growing a lot and is becoming a key reference in all these activities. So those are the top markets. Uh, One of the problems that the U.S. markets are going to face in the future is that the activities in the U.S., they become more inward-oriented, both in beans and oil, we will discuss that probably later on. These markets are going to become less of a resident for hedging purposes because they are going to lose international presence and we are going to be a weaker hedge tool because it's going to create a lot of premium volatility. So eventually we'll have to see new markets or different markets evolving to give enough tools to crushers to be able to perform their activities properly. Otherwise, a bad hedge is probably worse than no hedge. And Crush margins. Can you just quickly just unpack that a little bit for us? Because it is consequential for the story. Yeah, right. So you buy soybeans and then you crush it and you have 20% oil that you multiply for the price by the price of oil. Then you have 80% soybean meal that you multiply by the price of meal. Then you discount the price of beans and that's your margin. It's similar to the crack in crude oil where you basically compare the price of the byproducts versus the original feedstock. And depending on what's the crushing margin, you can then compare that with cost and you're in a good environment like we have today in most of the origins or you're in poor environments where actually your margin cannot cover cost and then you crash less. But today we have an environment of very positive crash margins because of the strong pull that the market is getting from the oil leg. Uh, Usually uh, when you speak about beans, you can 
try to determine what is the value of being coming from. And this is the oil mill value. And traditionally, the oil mill value has been 30% coming from the oil, while now you are reaching almost 50% coming from the oil because of the strength of the oil pool. Right. And there we are. We're up to the up to the moment now. Okay, so suddenly these beans are worth more as a result of the, the oils within them. And that oil that is largely driven by these being used for biodiesel and renewable diesel and the policies that sit behind that use um, in Europe and North America tied to energy transition. Can you talk about, because this starts to cascade into geopolitics, you know, unstable markets, lots of things start to, to spring from this point, but starting with Europe and the US or the US in particular, and you mentioned the fact that it's going to become slightly more dislocated from the global prices because of this factor. Can you talk to us about soybeans role in sustainable fuels? Yeah, let's start from the very general picture of biofuels in general. So biofuels in general are equivalent to around 2 million barrels of crude oil per day, while crude oil is a market of 100 million barrels daily. So you produce the equivalent of 2 million barrels of crude oil with biofuels. But if you net the amount of fossil fuel you need to produce these biofuels, the net contribution is even less. So let's say 1 million barrels. Biofuels come from two different sources. You have ethanol, which is done with maize and cane. And you have biodiesel, which is done with mostly vegetable oils. Today, about 20% of all the vegetable oils of the world, they are uh, used for biodiesel purposes and now more and more by renewable diesel. Uh, among all the oils, the most important one is palm, which is uh, produced mostly in Indonesia and Malaysia, followed by soybeans, followed by rape, and then sunflower oil. These are the four main oils. Now, going more to the US, we have on top of the traditional biodiesel industry, which is uh, organized at the federal level. Now we have some states in the U.S. laid by, by California and then Oregon, Colorado, which are promoting the use of renewable diesel, which unlike biodiesel, is not a, a cat. You can replace 100% diesel by renewable diesel. These policies are promoting this uh, demand, which is growing like hell. And actually, some people believe that some of the projects won't be able to materialize because there is not going to be enough feedstocks to supply. This um, policy originally was, I think, well thought with the idea of using used oil as a feedstock, but there is not enough, so you need to start developing new oils. And this is when soybeans and soybean oil came to the game. The projection is that today you are crushing in the US about 2.2 billion bushels of soybeans, and there are projects for new soybean plants to produce mostly with intention to produce oil to go up to 2.7, 2.8 million bushels of crash. So this is in metric tons, about additional 15, 16 million metric tons of beans, which will be crushed instead of exported. On top of that, there are going to be other oils like canola oil and eventually some used oil as well but it's going to rely this expansion mostly in soybean oil. And because there is not enough, uh, demand is very high, 
On top of that, the South American crops in 21-22 suffered because of La Nina and about 30 to 40 million metric tons of the crop was lost. So you have a very strong pool for oil coming from that source. And then we have the war and Ukraine and all that. But this is the reason why the oil markets are leading the food index price. So if you go behind what's raising prices at this moment, the main reason are vegetable oils. And within vegetable oils, on the supply side, you have Ukraine and weather problems. But on the demand side, the main reason is this strong pull coming from the renewable diesel industry. Yeah, which we're going to come back to because obviously there's a certain amount of is that policy wise and sustainable in a world of rising food inflation at an incredible rate that has a much more destabilizing effect on the world in the short term than tackling you know climate change does that not mean though if we're producing more soybeans in the wake of demand from the fuels industry that there's more soybean meal available and prices are going down on the meal side or talk to us about meal and in particular china and what's going on in their meat markets yeah that will be a big problem how the world is going to handle all this extra meal that is going to be produced to respond to the oil pool because like we said at the very beginning uh, soybeans are 80 percent meal and only 20 percent oil so it's a very inefficient let's say oil producer so the us is going to overproduce soybean meal and a good portion of it will have to be exported and so far the us is a relatively minor soybean meal exporter the biggest soybean meal exporter is argentina and followed by brazil and us exports of meal are going to compete hand to hand with argentina with brazil with europe and this is going to create a lot of consequences in the flows and all that. Also, because the freight levels are pretty high, Argentina is going to suffer also on the freight side. And Argentina also has no uh, enough crop lately because of some of the macroeconomic policies, uh, problems with the draft in the river, problems with quality. So the Argentine industry is going to suffer very much this development. And China as well, to some extent, because once... Uh, the U.S. starts allocating more of their beans for domestic crush. There are going to be less beans available for export. And China is relying at the moment both in Brazil and the U.S. But if the U.S. is exporting less and much less, it will have to rely more and more in Brazil. And once you have to feed crushers for 100 million metric tons, and it's much more comfortable to have two or three different sources of supply than having only one, because that one supplier, even if reliable, may face weather problems, may face logistical problems, may face strikes. And that is going to put a lot of pressure on the China side. And I don't think, I think it's pretty naive to assume that China is going to replace the beans that they won't be able to buy by soybean meal. So we will have to see as well how are they going to manage meat. The meat world trade, the world trade is... 40, 45 million metric tons. China went from 3, 4 million metric tons to 10 following the African swine fever that decimated their hog, crop, their hog population. Now that they are recovering their hog population, they are starting to import less meat. So it forces big swings in the flows when it goes from 3 million to 10 million, now down to probably 7 million this year. 
And if eventually you don't have access to enough soybeans in the future, you can build a case that maybe they open the door again for additional meat imports. So it's uh, going to create a lot of distortions in the flows. And on top of that, higher prices and otherwise, and implications also on the environment, implications on world poverty. So this is a pretty delicate issue. One thing I think is to have these um, biofuel mandates when we're in a context of relatively low prices. It's very different when we have these mandates in the context of very high prices. Actually, there are a lot of rumors that we may see in Europe some of these mandates uh, suspended for a while until we see more clarity over the direction of future prices. Wow. Well, that would have a very consequential impact for markets. Um, this, I kind of want to dig in a little bit on this because, so, you know, for China, this is very much a strategic issue. And we saw that play out in the trade negotiations with the US. China, on a geopolitical scale, trying to manage this, you know, significant risk to their economy and political power. Well, certainly China will react trying to increase the domestic production, but there are strong limitations uh, to really expand. So, yeah, we are going to see bigger numbers. Now China announced that they are going to allow also GMO crops. So far, they have been focusing only on non-GMO. So we'll see a bigger crop. But it's very minor in the context of what they need. China today produces 17 million metric tons of domestic beans, and they need about 100 million. So even if they go from 17 to 20, still peanuts in the context of the total flow. So on the one hand, China is becoming is, is very powerful in the world of beans because they import 60% of all the world trade. And Chinese organizing their trade becoming more and more concentrated. So today a good portion of the trade is in the hands of Chinese companies uh, through Kofco. Kofco International, they can search beans from many different origins. And because also they build reserves, they can actually add or deduct from the commercial flow the decision to build or to sell reserves. And that creates also a lot of distortions. Just to give an example, let's assume that your projected carry out in the US for next year is 300 million bushels. Okay, and China decides to sack the 300 million bushels to build reserves. So that has big implications for the flat price, has big implications for the forward curve for spreads, for inverses, for premiums, and they know how to play that. And I think they are smartly playing that game better and better because they are learning year after year. So they have a pretty strong tool, let's say, to play. But on the other hand, if they don't have the beans, because the beans, they stay in the US, they will suffer that as well. So how all this is going to get organized is really very complicated. Also, another lesson, I think, after the US-China war, when actually China had to rely mostly in Brazilian beans, China may decide to have a problem with the US or may decide to have a problem with Brazil, but certainly they cannot have a problem with both together because they run out of food, basically. Yes. I mean, one of the things that's happened over the last decade and kind of in faltering steps, really, was obviously the rise of Kofco and you know, and this was a similar trend played out more broadly of sort of national, nationally sponsored ag trading organizations. How have we seen them trying to ensure supply from, in particular, Latin America as they position themselves to be able to live without U.S. soybeans, potentially? 
I think the decision making there is becoming more and more centralized and eventually a bit more secretive than the past as well. So it's very clear that they are very conscious about the challenges they are facing. And yes, Govco has a very strong presence in Brazil and Argentina and almost no presence in terms of assets in North America. So yeah, all the focus is there. But the problem is that, okay, Brazil is already maximized. Argentina can eventually become a supplier of uh, beans if the local industry shrinks. Today, China eventually can buy soybean milk from Argentina, but they never do it. So I suppose that also they are going to become more efficient in their feeding practices. They are going to use or try to use less soybean meal on relative basis, and they can also try to diversify into other soft meals, like meals coming from sunnies, from rape, in order to minimize the usage of soybean meal. And then the last solution is how are they going to manage uh, meat, because they can always import a bit more meat. But they will feel cornered. And I think the intended consequence of the biofuel policies in the US, they are going to make China feel cornered. And in the, co in the context of all the frictions that the world is facing, is probably another problem to have. So, okay, so we've got this food versus fuel narrative. And already, as you alluded to, that pressure is being recognized at the policy level by politicians you know, in Europe, quite naturally in the wake of what's going on with sunflower oil in Ukraine. You've got, obviously, China has big strategic concerns here. This is another example, kind of somewhat mirrored on the energy side, where you know they're a net importer and, and how they manage that global supply is very consequential for markets as well. Talking about the future of soybean then, we're kind of, it seems like we're at this inflection point where yes, prices have risen significantly, but as you mentioned earlier, the forward curve, it, they drop back down. Can you sort of give us the case for rising prices and then we can come on to why that might not happen? But it seems like we're at quite a critical knife edge where prices could really start rocketing in the wake of more geopolitical destabilization, you mentioned La Nina and crop failures. Can we dig into that a little? I think prices in general, not only about beans, but certainly this applies to beans as well, uh, they are going to be affected by four big variables. One is the macroeconomic environment, where actually we are going into a sort of a stagflation scenario, which is going to have an impact in terms of growth, in terms of inflation. And the other three variables are more micro variables. And one is the biofuels policy, which we discussed. And they are also, in the context of the discussion, we shouldn't forget also what's happened in Indonesia. Indonesia is uh, using 30% of the palm produced there also for biofuels. So it's another, let's say, user of biofuels. And now they decided not to export any oil because the local prices were moving up and people were very worried about inflation. So disconnecting Indonesia from the world markets in oil is equivalent to having the US and Brazil not exporting soybeans at the same time. So it's a big issue, right? Uh, so in terms of where are prices going, so there are so many variables. So do you disconnect or you don't disconnect biofuels? Do you have Indonesia opening exports again or not? Uh, you have Europe capping the usage of oil for non-food purposes. In the US, it seems less likely because this big pool is coming more from a state level, so it's less of a federal issue. 
but I don't know how California thinks about the implications of their policies, but uh, it seems less likely that they may decide to, to, to slow it down. And then on top of the macroeconomy, you have the value of fuel, you have weather. Weather has been very detrimental to crops in the last two years. In the case of oil seeds, uh, we lost in Canada last year a good portion of the crop. In beans, we lost in South America almost 15% of the local crop. Uh, there were also some weather issues in Malaysia lately. So weather has been really, really a key factor explaining why prices are where they are. And the last one for sure is the war, right? Where uh, the impact of uh, Ukraine, which is a big exporter of some flour oil, is also pushing prices higher. But depending on how these different variables play out, you can paint from a sort of beige picture. If you see biofuels policies in reverse, if you see rains and weather improving, if you see the end of the world, or on the other hand, you can see things getting really bullish if actually biofuels policy continue, the weather doesn't improve, and we don't have a good crop in the US, and eventually we have a third round of La Nina in South America in 22-23, and if the war continues. So it's a very VUCA world in terms of volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Not, not easy to make predictions here. On the weather side of things, is uh, so just in my reading for this as well, you know, soybeans need a, a summer average of 20 to 30 degrees Celsius. Are they particularly fragile in that sense? Is their sort of range of, of, um, uh, of, of cultivatable land relatively small compared to other crops? I mean, you know, because we can only imagine that weather, significant weather events are going to get more, more significant and more frequent, um, at least from what we're seeing over the last few years. Well, soybeans occupy between 8 and 10% of all the cropland in the world. And again, they are very concentrated in a few countries. Uh, however, those countries are very big, so it doesn't mean that because there is a problem in one of the countries, the problem is affecting the whole crop. But yes, they, they are uh, vulnerable to have problems, but we had very serious problems lately. The kind of weather we saw in South America in December of 2022, which was the seventh Seven times in history, we have two consecutive La Niñas in South America. That was the case this year. So when you have two consecutive La Niñas, the effects are pretty bad. So this is why it's so concerning that you have people starting to think that we may have a third La Niña consecutively in 2023. And I don't know about any historical record of three consecutive La Niñas together. Uh, so I don't think beans per se are particularly vulnerable, but when weather doesn't cooperate, yeah, you suffer yields and even a minor problem with yields these days when stocks are so tight, creates a big problem. Yeah. And then the other, I think that we've obviously covered that, that fuels and I mean, the, the policy side around uses of fuel is obviously the sort of the, one of the main variables and could change on a dime in the current environment, which would be very impactful. You mentioned stagflation. Can you just talk to that? How does that play into this story? You know, and indeed, what, what do you mean by that? The world economy expanding less than projected. At the very beginning, we were expecting that 2022 was going to be a year of four, four and a half percent growth for the world economy. And now things are slowing down in the US, in Europe and China because of COVID. And now the economy is projected to grow only at 3% or so. 
On top of that, inflation is becoming more structural than, than transitory. And that combination is not bullish demand per se. So when you combine the fact that we have very high prices for food, very high prices for energy, very high prices for services, an economy that in total is not growing a lot, I think that's leading to less demand overall. Uh, it's always easy to say that, for example, food demand is inelastic to higher prices. And I think that's right, but in a very different context. I think food is inelastic when you have the price of a single commodity, let's say wheat moving up 10, 20%, so demand doesn't suffer. But when you have prices moving up 50, 100, 150%, and with food, you have energy moving up, you have services moving up, and you have the whole economy slowing down, I believe that we are going to see an impact in demand, and we are already seeing demand elasticity, which is going to affect total demand negatively. Yeah, there's only so much elasticity, though, in food, right? I mean, could this be sort of one of the... The, the the more outliers in that suite of commodities? Yeah, I believe so. I think we are going to see probably more elasticity than expected. I don't think the individual consumer is going to be able to afford the combination of every single price moving up and the economy not growing very fast. And think also about the fiscal situation of most of the countries where countries expanded a lot during COVID. Now they need to start shrinking, so they are going to eventually raise taxes or take more debt, interest rates are moving up. Uh, we are going to have a negative wealth effect because if the stock exchange is suffer because of the higher interest rates, we are going to have a big contraction in terms of uh, nominal wealth, which is certainly going to affect consumption and is going to affect the consumption of food as well in this specific environment. Yeah. Just one final question staying on soybeans, and I want to move on to commodities as a hedge just very briefly because i know you've got a, a paper coming out of, about that with a, a um a student of yours at uh, the university of, of geneva how has this if anything changed the competitive landscape or even the organization of kind of the big you know the abcds the big ag houses cargill adm bungie dreyfus etc that's an interesting question because I would say that even if from a geographical point of view these uh, trade flows are very concentrated, they are still very competitive in the sense that you have a very a, many, many companies competing for these flows. So you don't have only the traditional four, ABCD, but you also have, like we discussed before, Kofco having a big presence, you have Glencore, you have Olam with a very big uh, soybean book in China. You have Wilmar as well, which is a big, big player in the soybean world because of their crushing plants in China as well. So it's a very competitive world. You have a lot of Chinese companies buying both FOB and CNF uh, to get beans into China. So now, how is it going to affect? I think the scenario that we are facing today with a combination of very high volatility, which is leading eventually to smaller risk positions by many companies and also putting pressure in margin calls uh, is going to eventually lead to more concentration. I think it's going to be quite difficult for small companies to afford the financial requirements to be able to run business with this level of uh, financial needs and this level of uh, risk units. So my, my feeling is that we may see more concentration in the future. Yeah, yeah, one, and we're seeing that across the commodities sector and driven by that ultimately a lack of funding on, on all levels. 
Okay, so and we've got an executive summary coming out on this, or an article coming out of this on on HC Insider uh, Newswire, where people can find written interviews in addition to the podcast. But you and a colleague have recently published a paper on essentially using commodities as a hedge to inflation. Can you just give us a quick overview of what that is and the thesis there? Yeah, we wrote this article together with my colleague Alan Futterman, uh, who is in Argentina. And our reaction is to a lot of different uh, articles that we read where financial entities advise investors to invest in commodities because of inflation. And our conclusion is that that sometimes works, but in other cases it doesn't work. So it's not a general rule. So you have to be very careful. Uh, so the entry point is really key because if you arrive too late to the party, eventually you are going to lose money because traditionally commodities had been a good hedge versus inflation only in very specific periods. Also, which commodities? For example, energy and precious metals correlate pretty well, but agris, they don't correlate pretty well because agris, they are gaining productivity all the time, so the unitary cost is going down. So then another conclusion is that you better, if you decide to go ahead and build a position to hedge against inflation, you need to find commodities where you have a very compelling fundamental story beyond inflation to support the price moves. Because at the end of the day, most of the commodities, they have a very rich inner life and they move up or down more because of the supply and demand than because of inflation. So inflation is more noise in all this. And so recommendation as well is to invest through active strategies where people understand markets well versus uh, a passive or index strategy. There is a bit of a paradox in all this. When you see most of the commodities inverted and you see people making money thanks to commodities inverted, that's completely contrarian against the idea of making money because of inflation. Because in an inflationary world, future prices are higher than spot prices, not lower than spot prices. And if markets are inverted, they're inverted because of real reasons, not because of nominal reasons. So we conclude, we believe that there is a lot of confusion. We don't say that you should never invest in commodities because of inflation, because there are very specific cases where actually it's a very good hedge. The 70s are a good moment. This moment is a good moment. However, we believe that prices are higher mostly because of real reasons, not because of inflationary reasons. But uh, we recommend to be careful and to be very, very timely in terms of the entry point, because if you arrive too late to the party, it's a very expensive lesson. Let me give an example. Let's say that you went long any commodity index in 2008. Okay, Since 2008 until today, we had 30% inflation. And you have all the commodity indexes below 2008 levels. And on top of that, you need to discount 30% inflation. Okay, So another thing to consider is what's the makeup of your commodity index. So commodity indexes which have more weight in energy and metals will perform better in normal terms than commodity indexes which have a bigger content of items. Of course, all these things can change in the future according to the energy transition evolution, uh, because we may have more demand for metals, we eventually put more biofuels. So these things may change. But uh, our conclusion is that it doesn't work 100% of the times. Correlations are very dangerous. We see a lot of articles written saying that there is a very strong correlation. 
I'm fine, there is a correlation, but what about the following? Let's say that you have a commodity which is moving up every year 5% during 10 years, while inflation is moving up 10% during 10 years. Do you have a good correlation? Yes, but you are losing in real terms 5% per year. Okay, and coming back to the comparisons I made before, when people forget about real prices and they make only comparisons in nominal prices, all these numbers, they become very distorted and don't make any sense. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, you know, I guess uh, it sounds very much like, yeah, invest in a super cycle, but not in, not in inflation uh, when it comes to commodities. Agree, agree. I, th I, th I think that, that that's the bottom line. Make your homework, analyze the supply and demand. And if you find a very good compelling reason to invest in a commodity because of fundamentals, go for it. If you have a bit of inflation on top of that, even better. But don't go long only because of the inflation story, because it could be problematic. Yeah. I mean, a, a, an added challenge to that is so much of the current rising commodity prices, if we sort of control for exogenous you know, impacts like Ukraine, etc., a lot of it is ultimately policy driven in the sense of we talked, you know, sustainable fuels has a big part to play, a huge part to play in what's going on in soybean. We can look at other elements of the energy transition, carbon, et cetera, withholding funds from the traditional hydrocarbon industries. Um, so it seems as well this time, you know, even if you're working on the basis of looking at supply and demand, you also need to have that weather eye on the policy world because, as you alluded to, if, if Europe changes or suspends sustainable aviation policy, et cetera, you know, sustainable fuel, bio, ethanol and biodiesel policies, you're going to have some real shocks to the market. Uh, you're very right. I think we are in an era now where demand is very politicized. Uh, so just take the agri world. You have China buying one third of all their agricultural products, which are traded internationally. On top of that, you have about 15% of all the agri-world going for biofuels. Those two demand centers are very political. On top of that, you are adding now, because of the war, a lot of governments getting involved in flows, like we saw in the last days, India announcing that they are going to export more wheat, less, less wheat, then government-to-government -government deals with Egypt. That is going to make any projection in the future very uncertain because the decisions, the logics, the rationale of those interventions are not relying purely on the price system. And we are going to see our markets populated by big players which are not constrained by profit and loss. And that is going to make the possibility to predict much, much harder. Yeah, we had Soren Schroeder on a few episodes ago talking precisely to this, right? The solution for rising food prices is a free market. Whereas, unfortunately, the the reaction, and quite understandably as well, from at a governmental level, is to is to go against that because it's very hard to ignore, you know, populations in in crisis. Of course, well, I encourage people to go to. I don't mention it often enough. If you go to hcgroup.global, you can sign up there for our HC Insider news wire news content hub where there are many written pieces of thoughts and interviews and so forth of which coming up presumably by the time this episode comes out your piece will be on there as well so i encourage listeners to go and uh, and, and sign up for that evo you know as always thank you very much for your your insight and time and um, you know i've enjoyed doing a, a soybean 101 per se and and how all of these things tie back into these same themes of deglobalization 
energy transition and a, you know very much a, a commodity market on the edge of crisis. Many thanks for the invitation. Many thanks for the program because it's a great learning tool for all the students of commodities around the world. I keep recommending this uh, to all the people. And I hope to be here again someday in the future. Excellent. Well, me too. And uh, encourage your students to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Anyway, thanks, Ivo. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.